Well, before I start, I just want to say uh, thank you for having me here today. I see many familiar faces. It wasn't that long ago that many of you ministered to my mother as she was dying of cancer. And, and uh, I think about our worship today, and I think my mom's in heaven worshiping. She's a better worshiper than we are. And so, again, thank you for loving Carla Abendroth. I'll always remember Omaha Bible Church for her love and for her care uh, for Carla Abendroth. I also think about coming back here to Omaha. I graduated from the University of Nebraska at Lincoln in 1982, and I left behind a wake of sin and death and destruction. <clears throat> and then I moved to California, and God saves me, and now I come back to preach you the living Word of God. God's grace changes people, doesn't it? Doesn't He? What's the most dangerous thing you've ever done in your life? What's the scariest, most terrifying, most dangerous thing you've ever done in your life? Skydive? Bungee jump? Whitewater rafting? Paragliding? Maybe scuba diving? What's the most dangerous thing you've ever done? This morning, we're going to talk about the most dangerous thing you'll ever do. And that is... To listen to a sermon preached by Jesus Christ about His exclusive salvation through His life and death on the cross, raised from the dead, and have you do nothing about it. If you're an unbeliever here today, and I'm sure we have unbelievers here, children, maybe young people, maybe spouses or friends, if you're an unbeliever today and you listen to this sermon and do nothing about it, it will be the most dangerous thing you've ever done in your life. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 7 and see if I'm right. Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount. I am very, very excited to look at this passage. It, it could be preached to me a hundred times and I still think, that's Matthew 7. And when I turn the pages to this passage, I think to myself, anticipation is building. My little daughter Gracie is now not so little. She's eight and she can go on every ride at Disneyland and all the rides now. She, she's tall enough in the little growing bean chart now. And so I got to take Gracie on Space Mountain in Disneyland just about a month ago. And we went, got on the little carts, and all of a sudden you're to the part of that roller coaster where it's engaged and it's bringing you up. You know what I'm saying? And every time I could feel that cart click, the anticipation in Gracie's little heart just got bigger. We're getting closer to the top and gravity soon will fly us down that thing. And you could just see her face. That's kind of the excitement I have as I turn my Bible to Matthew 7 and I think there's no preacher like Jesus. There's no gospel like the gospel of the resurrected Savior. And Matthew 7 is almost the pinnacle of the greatest sermon that's ever preached. If you're not saved today, I'm mainly talking to you. If you're not born again, if you're not a Christian, this message from Jesus is to you. The good news is, though, if you're a Christian, you'll like to hear about the gospel of Christ, won't you? All Christians love to hear the gospel. Jerry Bridges said you should preach it to yourself every day. If you're also a Christian here today, you'll say to yourself, I wonder if I evangelize like Jesus evangelizes. I wonder if I talk the way Jesus do, do, would, would talk to unbelievers. 
And before we dive into Matthew chapter 7, let me give you just some couching material so we know what we're talking about with context. Jesus has come along and He's begun to preach repentance. True? And then you can almost take Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and say it's an amplification of one word. The word that Jesus came to preach in Matthew 4 and that word is repentance. The whole sermon's about changing your mind. Repent means to change your mind. And if your mind changes, everything else will change too. If you had to summarize the Sermon on the Mount, I'd go to chapter 5, verse 20. If you'd like to know the purpose, the reason, the theme, the key verse that you underline to unlock this book, to unlock this sermon, you go to 520, Matthew 520. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Take the most religious people in the world today are back in those days. And unless your righteousness is even above that, super beyond that, you're not going to heaven. Why? Because you have to be perfect to get into heaven. I love to speak to college groups or high school groups and junior high groups. And I'll say, how many people here think you have to be perfect to get into heaven? Perfectly holy to get in heaven. Not many raise their hand. But if you look with me to chapter 5, verse 48. The one who determines the entrance requirements for heaven said, Matthew 5.48, You, therefore, must be what? Perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. After all, heaven's perfect. God's perfect. Heaven's holy. God's holy. You have to be perfect to get into heaven or heaven wouldn't be heaven anymore. You have to be holy to get into heaven or heaven wouldn't be holy anymore. And the instant conclusion we all should have is, I don't measure up. I'm undone. Everything I do is tainted with sin. I need help. I need a Savior. I need a deliverer. I need a rescuer. So Jesus comes along the scene and He doesn't say, you're okay. You're a Jew. Father Abraham, good to go. You're circumcised. You're fine. You're a Jew. You're fine. In our today's context, you're baptized. You're good. You're confirmed. You're good. You go to church. Good. You're, you're a member. Good. No, perfect you must be. And Jesus preaches this sermon. The sermon really ends in 7.12 with the golden rule. The sermon's really done there, but you say there's more red letters that follow. Uh, yes, because that is basically the application. The sermon is chapter 5, 6, 7, 1 to 12, and then Jesus comes to the so what. And I know Pastor Pat, I almost called him Uncle Pat, uh, he preaches, so what? Here's the truth of God. What will your response be? And that's the paradigm of the holies. Here we have revelation. God shows Himself. You must respond. God shows Himself in nature. We have a response. God shows Himself in His Word. We have a response. And Jesus is going to give your response to His sermon. And I'll tell you what it's not going to be. It's not going to be this after Jesus preaches. Great sermon. If you tell me at the end of this service when I'm greeting you afterwards and you say, that was a really great sermon, I'm going to tell you this with a smile on my face if I can manufacture it. So what are you going to do about it? The response to preaching is not, that was great philosophy, great systematic theology. Boy, his oratory is wonderful. Jesus said, you've heard these words of life. What are you going to do about it? 
And from this text today, let me show you four responses to the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of God. I'm going to call this sermon Red Alert because it's got kind of that battleship language. You can imagine those red lights. If those lights up there were red, kind of flashing on and off, all hands on deck, battle stations, you've got to respond, red alert. So I'm going to give you four warnings from Jesus, not just to his disciples, not just to those who are listening, but to you, and especially if you're not a Christian, these are for you. And you'll quickly find out that not every sermon is supposed to console. We like to hear sermons that comfort us, don't we? Oh, that really just comforted my soul. Gave me kind of a balm. Have you ever had chapped lips and you finally get home and you put that chapstick on and you go, oh, my lips feel so much better. Relief. Not every sermon does that and this one doesn't do it either. I have four kids and when they're little, there's different ways to talk to kids. When they're sick in the middle of the night, it's 3 o'clock in the morning, you hold a little baby, you hold them close, you cuddle the baby and you kind of sing to the baby. I used to sing a little song, Everything's Alright in My Father's House. Rock the baby and just console. That'd be appropriate in that circumstance. But if the baby is in some boat going over Niagara Falls, I don't sing a little lullaby, do you? you what do you sing? Now I lay me down to sleep song or something? No, you yell, help, somebody wake up, somebody's got to help my kid. That's the tone of this kind of sermon from Jesus. Four warnings to help you understand how do we respond to gospel preaching. Warning number one, enter. You must enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll give you one word if you'd like, enter, or a sentence if you'd like. You must enter the kingdom of heaven. The first response to preaching is, Jesus said, you must enter. And if you go to chapter 7, you'll find this section in verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. You like to summarize these two verses? It's summarized by the word that you'll see there a few times. Enter. You must enter. Even though salvation from the human perspective is difficult, nigh impossible, according to Jesus, Jesus calls for your response. God doesn't enter for you. God doesn't repent for you. God doesn't believe for you. He said, this is what I've done. And now on this side of the cross, there's a, a, a God who has died on the cross, substitutionary atonement, He's raised from the dead, and then now you must believe. And you say, why the enter language? Well, you have to think about a kingdom... And there's a door there, and there's a door there. And uh, you can imagine Jesus saying, if you'd like to enter into heaven with this wonderful figurative language, you've got to go through the door. You just can't stand out there. In a sense, this is just language for you must believe. You must repent. Enter. Salvation is all of God, but conversion requires human responsibility. You must enter. Look at the language that Jesus uses here. Hard, easy. Jesus said it's hard to enter this kingdom. Why do so many preachers these days make it seem like it's so easy when Jesus says right there, this is very difficult, it's compressed, it's narrow, it's hard to get through. 
It's easy to walk an aisle. It's easy to sign a card. It's easy to say, I'll take Jesus as my Savior, but not Lord. It's easy to be baptized, but it is hard to enter through this gate. So Jesus says, you must enter. In spite of your selfishness, in spite of your uh, uh, focus on yourself and love for self and this indulgent culture, you must enter. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it's like one of those turnstiles you go through at an airport where you can't really get all your luggage through that turnstile. There's only enough room for you to get through. You can't take all your sin tote bags and everything else. You've got to go through by yourself. It's hard, it's compressed, it's restricted, but you still must enter. There's a broad way. You can imagine some 20 uh, lane highway over here and some little tiny path over here. And this broad road says, you're a pro-abortion Christian? Come on. Live with your boyfriend? Come on, no big problem. Uh, uh, Gay clergy Christian? Come on, no problem. And Jesus says, no. That's the broad road and that leads to what? Destruction. You've got to enter through the narrow road. And if you take a look at verse 13, enter, the way that is set up is don't delay. There may be no tomorrow. I've met people before and I've talked to them one day and the next day they are dead. This is not a time to compare and to contrast. Uh, let's examine if this is good for postmoderns. Let's talk about if Hegel would kind of like this dialectic. No, it means you ought to enter right now. You don't say, Jesus, keep preaching. I love preaching. Encore. No, enter. There's urgency here, Spurgeon said. Be up and on your journey. Enter in at the gate of the uh, way and do not stand hesitating. I think in Nebraska we'd use the word, don't stand there and gawk. Enter. The goal's worth it. Look at the text. It leads to life, verse 14. Eternal life. Heavenly life. The life purchased by Christ's death, confirmed by His resurrection. And you must enter because there are no other options. What are your options? In typical Jewish style, Jesus says there are only two options. The right option and the wrong option. Just like there's only two religions in the world. The religion that says, I can't trust myself because I've got sin. I'll have to trust the cross. And the religion that says, I'll do something to try to get there and earn heaven. Jesus said there's only two options. Does this sound familiar? Two option preaching. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, said Moses in Deuteronomy 30, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. So choose life. Doesn't this kind of preaching sound familiar? Elijah on Mount Carmel. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. If Baal is God, follow Him. Jesus says, enter. It's compounded by the problem that there's a majority that's going to push you the wrong way. So Jesus says, enter in spite of the majority. Do you look at verse 13? Many. You see verse 14? Few. Many go to the broad road. Few go to the narrow gate. We live in a culture like Judges 21 that everyone does what was right in their what? Own eyes. 
and the culture says, you're fine, we're pluralistic in our Christianity, and we're good to go, all roads lead to the same place, just be good and, and you're set, just die, just die and you're in heaven. You know, we go to these funeral homes and people say, well, they're in a better place now. I think, how did they get to be in a better place? Well, they died. That's what our culture says. And Jesus says, that's not the case. There are the many and there are the few. Went to the Boston Celtics uh, basketball game a while ago, a playoff game. And Luke and I left the garden. Excuse me. We left the garden. And uh, I didn't know where the T was. I didn't know where the subway was. And I said, Luke, we don't need to know. What we do is we just go with the flow. And we just were walking and wherever all the crowds were going, we just went and all of a sudden, 10 minutes later, there's the tea station. Just like going with the flow is perfect. We're there. And Jesus said, if you act that way with the culture and imbibe what the culture is selling, you're not going to be ending up there in heaven. You're going to be ending up in hell. And it's one thing to say, you know, I'm going to hell. I'm going to party with all my friends and I'm... A, Anton LaVey and I, I make a satanic Bible. It's another thing to think, I don't hate God. I think I'm going to heaven. And when I die, I'm looking forward to see Jesus. But as John Bunyan would talk about Pilgrim's Progress, to imagine that there's a porthole to hell at the gates of heaven, a lot of people are going to be surprised. So Jesus, in kindness and in love, He doesn't say, go to the broad road. I'm holy and not gracious, so everybody go to hell. Jesus says, no, I'm merciful, I'm gracious, I'm love incarnate. Enter. Enter the narrow way. Enter life. Choose life. 2001, George Barna, statistician. 51% of Americans believe that a person was generally good, they would earn their place in heaven. Jesus is saying to these Jews, we have a father, Father Abraham. Jesus is saying, if you're not a Christian, if you don't follow me, if you don't enter in, you have a father, that's right, but his name isn't Abraham, his name is Satan. You say, well, at this rate, only a few people are going to heaven if you ever ask me, uh, Pastor, do you think just a few are being saved? I'll quote these verses. He was passing through from one city to another, and Jesus was teaching. And someone said to Jesus, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? Luke 13. Jesus, are there just a few? Maybe it was an academic theological issue, how many angels dance on the head of a needle, pin, or maybe they just really wanted to know. Maybe they just think it's all the Israelites. But are just a few being saved? What did Jesus say? Agonize to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. The question isn't how many go. The question is, are you going? No decision is a decision not to enter. Warning number two. The first warning could be summarized with one word. Enter, believe, repent. It's language like that of the kingdom. The second warning is found in the next set of verses. And you can even see probably in your Bible how these are chopped up by thoughts. Verses 15 through 20. And that word is beware. You must beware 
because people are going to try to teach the opposite of what Jesus just taught in verses 13 and 14. There is a context here together. They're related. You can't just listen to anybody, turn on TBN or the God station or whatever station is around here and just go, oh, I just think I'll listen to them, put them on my iPod, I'm good to go. Jesus says, beware. I looked up a bunch of bewares in culture. Beware the Ides of March. Let the buyer beware. I like this one. Beware of Greeks bearing gifts. Longfellow said, beware the awful avalanche. I guess I don't read Longfellow. But no one in this Google search said, the most important beware ever uttered in the world is, beware there are lots of false teachers contradicting Jesus. Look at verse 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Jesus says, the gate to heaven is narrow, and the false teachers go, no, it's not, it's broad. Jesus says, only a few are going. And the false teachers say, no, that's not true, there's lots. You can just imagine some kind of carnival hawker uh, standing in front of this gate saying, this is the road to heaven. It's the broad road to hell, but he's kind of selling it. Selling programs, you know, the, the guys who sell programs at sporting events and the women who sell them. You've got to have a program. And you can just hear their cadence. That's a false teacher who's standing there, just like a false teacher who stands there and says, everybody's in. No big deal. A quick reading of the New Testament calls false teachers deceitful workers, dogs, apostates, liars, depraved, despisers of the truth, false professors, deceivers, empty talkers, unreasoning animals, factious, perverted, mockers, untaught, unstable, unprincipled uh, from the world. They have the spirit of error. They're hidden reefs. They're arrogant. They're natural. And I could go on and on. People go, we don't want to talk about false teachers. We want to be a church. Uh, we want to be known for what we're for, not what we're against. Well, that's not a Christian church because a Christian church does what Jesus does and what He says. And Jesus says, you better warn people. Beware. By the way, that word beware in verse 15 is a present imperative. The word enter was more, it's urgent, enter. One time, enter. This is more watch out all the time because they're always selling their wares. You've got to be careful. Literally, the mind means to pay guarded attention. To hold your mind at something and just stare at it. Take a picture, it lasts longer. And Jesus says, there's all kinds of false teachers. I don't even have to study very hard to go, there's a litany of false teachers today that if you listen to and believe what they teach, you will be damned to the broad road that goes to destruction. From Robert Schuller to Joyce Meyer to Benny Hinn to Joel Olstein to just the list goes on and on and on. No cross, no righteousness of Christ, no holiness. Look at the problem though. There are many. What's the text say? Beware of false prophets. There's not just one infantry person in the Antichrist infantry, there's a bunch. They just keep multiplying. It's like rabbits in spring, one after another after another. If you think about the word prophet from the Old Testament perspective, a prophet would say, thus saith the Lord. Yes? It's exactly what these false prophets do. 
Thus saith the Lord. Come with your sin. Come with your unrepentant heart. Come not trusted in a risen Savior who died in your place. Just come on in anyway. You'll like the Greek word for false prophets. Pseudo-prophetes. False prophets. And boy, it looks good though, doesn't it? You ever go to a really good restaurant versus... I was going to say Taco John's. I don't know. <laughs> it looks good on the outside now, the new Taco John's. But we have a lot of restaurants in Omaha. They know how to, the real restaurants know how to make it really good and attractive. And you just look at that plate and you go, wow. That arrangement just cost me $20. Not just for the arrangement. The food costs more. Unbelievers know how to package. They're good at the four P's of marketing. For example, the old liberals in the 20s and 30s we could spot them a mile away because they smoked a lot of cigarettes without filters. They wore horn rim glasses and they're kind of geeky. You go, oh, that's a liberal. Now liberals, emergent church people, drink the right coffee, they wear cool glasses, they listen to good music and they fit right in. You go, oh, they're cool. In our day, everyone says, get together, unite, consolidate. We're all in this together. Spurgeon said, if you have a confederacy... Without the truth, it's a conspiracy against God. The bad news is they don't run around saying, Hi, I'm a false teacher, and I'm going to send your soul to hell. Want to follow me? They, what does the text say? Who come to you, verse 15, in what kind of clothing? With pitchforks and horns. They come in sheep's clothing. If a little sheep was outside the door right after service, what would everybody do? I know what I'd do if I had my kids. Hey, kids, there's a sheep outside Omaha Bible Church. Come on, let's go out there. Kids would pet the sheep. Oh, come on. And, you know, you say, oh, it's such a nice little sheep. And they might kind of name it and pet it. And you go, oh. But what if there's a wolf out there? What would you do? Here, little wolf, come on into the nursery. Come on, little wolfy wolf. It's one thing if we meet a heretic. And the heretic says, I despise Christianity and Jesus Christ. You go, oh, that's fairly obvious. It's another thing to say to yourself, well, that person's an apostate. They used to believe and believe, and now they say, forget it. I'm not following Christ. You go, I can see them. But how about a false shepherd who runs around in the clothing of wool of a teacher of the day and says, I'm part of you. I look like you. I smell like you. They are harder to distinguish. Mark this. False teachers should be identified by you, not for what they say, but primarily by what they don't say. You need to know that truth. It's not what they say. They say sin, but it's really a lack of self-esteem by definition. They say Jesus, but it's not the Jesus who alone can save by His own works of righteousness on the cross and in His life. They say resurrection, but it's some kind of spiritual resurrection. It's what they don't say. And here's what they don't say in context. The road is narrow. You must enter. Because inwardly, these false teachers, verse 15, are like ravenous wolves. When I think of wolves, I think of something ferocious. Too many shows on TV. Oh, we have pet wolves. I did a little wolf study, kind of wolfology, if you will. Wolves are apex predators in their ecosystems. 
They have scent glands between their toes so they can leave markers where they are so the other wolves know where to follow them so they can attack their prey. They have a bite. They have a canine teeth bite that can hold and subdue their prey with a greater crushing power and pressure than any dog ever had. They have up to 50 harmful parasites in their mouth. They'll eat about anything, but they love sheep. And they love pregnant sheep. And their favorite thing to do, according to this article that I read on the Internet, is they'll attack the pregnant sheep, they'll rip the babies out of the womb, devour them, and leave the mother carcass to rot. You ought to think to yourself when Jesus says false teachers are like wolves. It's not some little dog on, you know, the dog whisperer show. It's something that wants to tear you to pieces. Thankfully, verse 16 and following, you can know them by their fruits. You don't even have to look at what they listen to what they say. You can know about them by being a fruit inspector, knowing what they do. Verse 16, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? Maybe far away a thorn bush might have a little berry that looks like a grape, but once you get up close and really look, you'll go, that's no grape. Jesus says, don't be enamored by what they say. Watch the fruit of their lives. Be careful. People want to hear good things. They want to hear smooth things. They want to hear calming things. But better be careful. I read about a couple in New York who were married, excuse me, who were mailed two tickets to this great new Broadway hit. Doesn't say anything, just in the mail, two tickets. It's hard to get these tickets. It was a smash hit. They decided to go to the show, and that night they got home. Their house was ransacked. No jewelry, no furs. The safe is gone. They walked into the bedroom, and there was a little note on the pillow. Said three words. Now you know. Now you know. We told you what you wanted to hear, and we robbed you blind. Warning number three. The first warning is enter. The second warning is beware. Third warning is examine. Examine found in verses 21, 22, and 23. Jesus says there's a narrow gate to enter into heaven. By Jesus alone, Acts 4, 12. Acts 14, 6. He's the way, the the, the truth, and the life. No one enters except through Jesus. Be careful because people are going to tell you the opposite. Beware. And now it might not be a false teacher that's tricking you. It might be your own deceitful heart. Don't be tricked by the false teacher living within. You know this passage very well. And just because you talk a lot doesn't mean you possess Christ. And Jesus said, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, not our name, cast out demons. And in your name, not our name, perform many miracles. And then I will solemnly, judicially, frighteningly, Declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That should give you chills down the back of your neck. 
to think you're going to heaven and then end up in hell because you've got a faith that's not a real faith? Learn it well, and you've learned it at this church. There is a faith that does not save. True? James chapter 2, verse 14, we'll talk about that. There's a faith in Jesus that will not save because it's intellectual only. It's emotional only. It's not volitional. It's not with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength turning from self and saying, I'm going to believe in what Jesus has done. I read where 500,000 Americans have counterfeit diplomas or credentials. Doctors, lawyers, and everyone else. Counterfeit. Do you have counterfeit faith? Is what Jesus is asking. There's a false teacher lurking. Sometimes he could be lurking in your heart. Fill in the blank with me. The heart is more deceitful than above all else and is desperately sick. Be careful. Sorry you can never watch a Disney movie the same again. Trust in your heart. I know what's right. I just think, how about a Disney movie based on your heart can't be trusted? I don't know if it would sell well. If Eve in the perfect garden perfectly with Eve's righteousness, can be deceived by an external person, Satan, we have to be careful. Javer McGee says, the devil had a meeting with his demons to decide how to persuade men that God wasn't real. Some demons said to themselves, well, we believe in his existence, so we don't know what to do. Demons suggested that they tell Jesus uh, that Jesus never existed and men should not believe this fiction. Another demon suggested they persuade men that death ends all. There's no need to worry about life after death. Finally, the most intelligent demon suggested that they tell everybody that there is a God. His name is Jesus. Believing in Him alone saves. But you can get to heaven by simply professing faith and then go on living in sin as you used to. John 2, many believed in His name, but Jesus did not commit Himself to them. John 12, many believed on Him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess Him. If our definition of evangelical Christian would be Jesus's, we would understand there's a big gap between those who say they're Christians and those who really are. Proverbs 30, verse 12 says, Those who are pure in their own eyes and are yet not cleansed of their filth. You don't want to be that kind of person, do you? You know, Abraham Kuyper, the great reformer from Europe, uh, he became, became a new pastor. This was hundreds of years ago, and there was a lady sitting there, an elderly lady, and she had a, a, a hunch. Based on what he said, she realized, my pastor's not a Christian. So afterwards, she said, uh, Pastor, do you mind if I meet with you? She preached the gospel to Abraham Kuyper, and he got converted. You can be deceived. Can you imagine on the last breath that you'll ever take? I've watched people die, last breath, slowly breathing. You think they're never going to breathe again and they take one last breath, but finally it's the death breath. And those people are thinking to themselves, I'm going to see Jesus and then end up in hell. And Jesus says out of kindness and love, don't be that person. There's a judgment day. Do you see it in verse 22? Many will say to me, on that day, that day of days, that terrible day, that judgment day, a common term... Not technical, but a common term about judgment. The judgment day. Don't be the one who gets thrown into the eternal fire in the pit of abyss because you did not enter. You believe some hogwash of universalism or annihilationism. Jesus says, no, enter. And here the question is not, have you entered? But the question is, have you entered? And is there a change in your life? 
if there's no change in your life, there's no change in your position in Christ Jesus. You mean to tell me the God of the universe who creates with a word saves you and you go, I'm just the same as I used to be. Now, of course, there are baby steps. There are maturity issues. New believers don't have to act like Spurgeon. uh, But there's a change in your life. And the change is this. You begin to hate what you used to love and you begin to love what you used to hate the day you're saved. You might not recognize the day that you're saved, but there is a change in your life. You can't just give lip service. Look at verse 21. Lord, Lord. We know the right names. We have enthusiasm. But it's not saving faith. We know how to say God willing, DV, grace and peace to you. What would Jesus do? We've got the right evangelical dialogue. We've got the fundamentalist prattle. We've got conservative discourse. But are you changed? That's what Jesus says. You must enter. You must beware. And you must examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13. Arthur Pink said it's a tragic thing that in most places in America today, there is no preaching which is calculated to undeceive the deceived. You can't get to heaven by having an experience. These people had an experience. It's faith in Christ Jesus alone. Well, number four, we have to rush through. Number four. Four warnings. Number one, enter. Number two, beware. Number three, examine. Warning number four, found in verses 24 through 27. Obey. You must hear and obey. You cannot underestimate the words of Jesus. You know the song probably, right? Wise man build his house upon the rock. That's exactly it here. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts, underline that word, hears and acts. You hear and act. Wise man built his house on the rock. Rain fell, floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house, that house of the hearer and the obeyer. And yet, it did not fall. For it had been founded on the rock, the rock of the words of Christ Jesus, hearing these words of mine. Sadly, though, verse 26 Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not what? Act. Or according to the ESV, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the wind blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. I think foolish people in the old days, I think they were just stupid, dunce cap in the corner. The word here, moron, doesn't mean stupid. You could be the smartest person in the world and still be a fool. And the fool says this, yeah, God made everything. Yeah, I know He's a creator. I know I'll answer Him one day, but I've got to create some system in my mind because I like to sin. I have a conscience. I'm tired of alcohol and NyQuil and every other kind of hedonistic thing. i got to sleep at night. So who wants to have all this? You're going to answer to God stuff, so I'll create this evolutionary God, this God that's only love, this kind of, oh God, George Bird's kind of grandpa God, and I'll construct it all in my mind. And then I don't have to do what Jesus commands. Make no mistake, you don't do to get into heaven. But God says if you're saved, you will do works. Just like Ephesians 2 says. The moron, the fool, knows, but it's a a moral issue and he can't believe it. What about you? Have you entered? Do you believe? Don't tell me I believed 20 years ago. 
Because First John would say, are you believing right now? Did you enter? Are you being beware? Are you, have you examined yourself? You say, I don't have assurance now. Well, it's a very good, healthy thing for a church member to say, I ought to examine myself to see if I'm in the faith. If you're a Christian, it's good to say, only God could save a person like me. I'm going to praise Him. But if you're not a Christian today and you walk out of here like you walk out of every other sermon and do not respond, it will be the most dangerous thing you've ever done in your life. Let's pray. Father, we would exalt your name. We know only you can save. And we're very thankful that you save through the preaching of your word. Lord, I would pray today for the Christians that are here today that you would confirm in their hearts after self-examination that they're your children. I pray that the Christians today would preach more like Jesus, the greatest preacher who ever preached. I pray that they'd preach more like him. And Father, for those that are certainly sitting here, deceived, playing the game, trying to please spouse or child or mother or friend, I pray that today would be the day. Let them not sleep nor slumber until you grant them saving faith and they respond with entering, believing, receiving. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.